Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... A student-centered education is not simply lecturing to students on basic information. Okay, that is, that's the exact opposite of a student-centered education. Because students can do that on their own. They need to be able to do this on their own. That's the core intellectual step towards being a regular, functioning, viable human being and a good worker as being able to assimilate information into your own network. And if you do that for a student, then you're short-circuiting everything. So, I mean, it starts by looking at the student and asking what they need 20 years from now to be a good mom, to be a good programmer, to be a good engineer, to be a good friend, to be a good neighbor, to do anything. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. I recently read an article titled Flipped Learning Can Be a Key to Transforming Teaching and Learning Post-Pandemic. I wanted to learn more about flipped learning, and so I invited the author to join me on the podcast. He has also published the book Flipped Learning, a guide for higher education faculty. After teaching with flipped learning since 2009 and writing about it on his blog, he decided to write this book to guide other educators on their flipped learning journey and help them avoid the mistakes he made along the way. He also wanted to collect everything he knew about flipped learning, along with some research, theoretical foundations, history and practical examples, and put everything in one volume. I'm thrilled to introduce you today Robert Talbert, a professor of mathematics at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, where he teaches a wide range of mathematics courses and conducts research in undergraduate mathematics education with a focus on flipped learning and technology-enabled active learning. He also served as assistant chair and chair of the mathematics department between 2018 and 2020. Robert holds a master's and a PhD in mathematics from Vanderbilt University and taught in small liberal arts colleges for 14 years before arriving at Grand Valley State University in 2011. He's a frequent workshop facilitator and keynote speaker on teaching and learning in the US and abroad. He also writes about flipped learning, math, technology, education, and academic productivity on his personal blog. During our conversation, we discuss why Robert decided to try flipped learning for the first time, who uses flipped learning and why, and how to design a flipped learning environment online or as a hybrid course. We also unpack the resources and support educators need to be successful with flipped learning and guide their students to teach themselves any given subject before joining their classes. Tune in to learn from an inspirational leader in higher education who believes that flipped learning is the way of the future in higher education and wants to give faculty 
in all walks of higher ed, a handbook for how to get started and keep going. Let's dive right in. Hello, Robert. Welcome to Impact Learning. Hello, and thanks for having me. Robert, let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite memory related to learning? I have to say that I grew up watching public television in the United States, and there was a show called Sesame Street. And I, a lot of us in the U.S. like learned everything from Sesame Street. And I just remember learning the alphabet, I think, when I was about two or three years old on Sesame Street. And I had these little magnetic letters that you'd stick on your refrigerator. And I remember being at my grandmother's house, uh, who passed away very, very early. So I didn't never really knew her. But I have this one memory attached to her where I have these magnets out and I was spelling little words on her front porch. So I think that's probably my favorite and earliest memory period, much less uh, of anything, but especially of learning, I would say. So from the alphabet and letters, how did your passion for mathematics develop? Because you are the first person I know that has a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in mathematics. That is rare. <laughs> <laughs> We're a rare breed, that's for sure. Well, it, it, I have to say it was not a natural progression. I'm not naturally gifted at mathematics. I did not always enjoy learning mathematics. In fact, it was my by far my worst subject in school when I was before before college, at least. And in fact, in, when I was in the third grade, I was, I was having so many issues, I just would not do my math homework because I just hated doing it. And uh, it's, it's kind of amazing that I have actually ended up studying this subject. I mean, it was not my best subject by far in school, but I was taking math courses because I wanted to be a valedictorian, which is like the number one graduate in high school. So I was taking these courses like trigonometry and uh, algebra two and calculus not because I enjoyed them, because I did not enjoy them. I didn't know what I was even doing there, uh, because I was had this sort of this this big goal in mind. I guess I don't really know why I had the goal, but I remember being in my senior year of high school in calculus, and uh, I had a teacher, um, Frances Allen, who didn't tell me what to do. She just sort of gave me some basic information and then got out of the way and let us sort of just work through it ourselves. And I think it was something about having that that freedom to explore and construct my own understanding of what all these derivatives and integrals and everything else you study in calculus, what all of it means, that was what I needed. And I didn't realize that until I had it. And uh, it clicked with me in a way that nothing has ever clicked before. And I, it was too late for me to major in math in, in college. I had already uh, accepted a scholarship majoring in psychology and so I majored in psychology for a couple of years and was making really great strides in that. And I started realizing I enjoyed the statistical part of studying psychology. Like, I was pretty good at that. I could understand what all this stuff was saying because it was all, it all meant something. I mean, you study statistics right, I mean, correctly, every one of those little numbers has a meaning that can be interpreted in a context that actually helps people make decisions about things. And that just kind of fascinated me. And uh, the story goes that I was uh, sharing an apartment with a friend of mine who was a mechanical engineering major. And we would get into these arguments about who had the hardest major, right? Because he was a mechanical engineering major. And he was saying, oh, psychology majors are only doing this because they're just not smart enough to major in engineering. And so I said, all right, I'll show you. I'm going to, he dared me to sign up for an honors level calculus course. And I can't remember what the dare, the payoff was for the dare. 
But I, I signed up for honors calculus and I loved it. And it was, I, I found like second year of college on a complete accident, basically. I kind of finally clicked with me that this is what I ought to be doing. And so this sort of combination of understanding that all this mathematics has actual meaning to it. There's a narrative that's underneath it. If you can access the narrative and just kind of figure it out on your own, then it becomes like this incredible, beautiful thing that you can study and it and makes people's lives and the world a better place. If you, if you study in terms of just like tricks and algorithms and things that you do to numbers, it's not really very interesting. But there's more to it than that. I think once I accessed that that deeper level, it was it was all it was just love from that point forward. Yeah, you know, I, I love math from the start, but I didn't ever like studied it the way you did. But for me, when people say like, "What did you like about math?" It's the way I think. Other than describing things, mm -hmm. it helps me put things in context. And I'll tell you, it helps me a lot also with decision making and problem solving. But it's a way of thinking and the way of like observing what's happening around and then making decisions and solving problems. To me, that's math. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really a, it's a mindset, a language unto itself, sort of like a powered armor for your brain. It's a, it's a tool that, that fits very well with humans' native intellect It kind of makes us more human because it amplifies what, you know, makes us human beings in the first place, the ability to create and make intelligent and compassionate decisions about things that are, that are smart, that are based on things. Mm -hmm. At which point did you decide that you want to become a teacher or a professor, like go down this track? Well, that, that question actually goes back further than math because I have two older sisters. One is six years older than I am. One is nine years older than I am. So when I was around that third grade experience, my oldest sister was going off to college and she was the first kid in our family to go to college. I, I love to learn. I've always loved school. I love to learn. just not math. <laughs> I was much more into like language and poetry and writing and creative stuff. But my sister, Carolyn, came back from college and was telling me about these people called professors. And I was like, well, what's that all about? And she said, well, and what she described what a professor does. And I said, so let me get this straight. I mean, there's a job out there where you can be paid, like paid, to do nothing but learn things and study. And she was, yeah, that's basically it. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and, so, and so here I am. It's, you know, 40 years later, basically. Yeah. I know. I know because there is that. Like you're teaching, but you are learning. It's I'm paid to be a learner. And that's <laughs> yes. just like, I can't believe that I get paid for this. You know, so. Absolutely amazing. So you started teaching at a small liberal arts colleges. How did this, like, was it intentional or was it just opportunities that came along your path? Well, so I actually started teaching uh, when I was in graduate school at Vanderbilt University. I had a teaching assistantship and I don't know how, I think it's still the same at Vanderbilt these days and a lot of places where you're, it's more than just being a teaching assistant for a professor. I was the instructor of record for calculus classes, calculus for engineers and so on. So I was kind of thrown right in there. And I knew very early on that I'd made the right choice. That I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. But I also kind of felt like Vanderbilt, while it was an amazing school, great students, It's a very particular kind of school. I mean, it's a top 20 research university, the best of the best of the best students. And I was thinking, I don't want to know only how to teach the best. Like, I want to actually experience, like, real life in the trenches, frontline teaching. And so I taught at a community college as an adjunct. I took a, a part-time job. I wasn't supposed to. It was completely against the rules to take part-time jobs as a, as a teaching assistant. But I did it anyway and taught. It was like, basic arithmetic to adults, basically, is what I ended up doing. Uh, people who were 
dropped out of school or they're single parents trying to get a job and or they're working for the state government and they needed to learn more statistics or, or something to that effect. And that was, a, that was a real experience. I mean, it was a great experience. That sort of very real life, street level, you know, not <laughs> super curated students, but like people that really have a need and really have a grown up needs in a grown up world. So I went from there to small liberal arts colleges, one, both in Indiana. One, I was there for my first four years out of graduate school, and then I moved to another school for another 10 years. And um, I don't know, it was something about the small teaching-focused environment. I did not want to be a researcher in mathematics. I mean, I love math, and I, I managed to get a PhD in it doing research, but it was not, that wasn't my skill set. That was a means to an end for me. It really was about teaching college courses and teaching college students and making a difference in the lives of that particular demographic. And so I felt at the time, like of all the places that were indicating some interest in me, these small schools where you have a community in place amongst the students and the faculty and between faculty and students, like I wanted to be part of not exactly a family, but I wanted to be part of a community that was all in this sort of thing together. And I felt like I found that at small liberal arts colleges. I also have found that at my current institution at Grand Valley State, which is a much, much, much larger institution. It's kind of unique in that sense. But these smaller teaching-focused schools, liberal arts colleges, do like amazing work, have a unique mission and niche. It's a, definitely a, a great place to, to start a career, I found. Mm-hmm. American higher education is this really rich ecosystem that has a lot of really neat parts to it. And every institution is different, and every institutional type, is every Carnegie type is different. And research one universities, like University of Michigan or Michigan State down the road from us or Vanderbilt, play an amazing role in that, in that ecosystem. We would be nowhere without them. But they don't have the same sort of focus as a Grand Valley State University. I mean, we have 26,000 students. We're a large school, but we don't focus on research. We do research. All of us have to do scholarship and research in our disciplines to stay current and to stay up to speed with promotion, tenure, salary, merit raises, and that kind of thing. But our number one focus is on undergraduate education. We have graduate students, but we focus on undergraduate education. And uh, it's a very different vibe than being at a place like Vanderbilt, where Vanderbilt had at the time in the 90s when I was there an unusually well-developed teacher training sort of program in the math department in-house and also through the Center for Teaching, uh, currently run by my friend Derek Bruff, who's an amazing sort of gift to all of higher education. Not every place has that. And even places that do, there's a little bit of a tension between you have to do a lot of research production to stay employed at these places. And yet you also have teaching to do. So there's a lot of give and take between those two parts of your world. And making them work together in concert is like a very, very hard problem. Uh, At a place like Grand Valley, we don't really have to worry so much about that. I mean, our primary responsibility is teaching in the classroom, period. And that's just, that's well understood. And it changes the way that we think about scholarship. Uh, you know, the scholarship is not necessarily proving theorems for me, okay? It, it can look like doing undergraduate math educational research, which is where the majority of my research work has come in the last 10 years. Or it could look like cross-disciplinary research, you know, because we want to keep those barriers low between the math department and the biology department, for example. Mm-hmm. Which areas do you explore through your research? Mainly, I've been focusing on flipped learning for the last probably 10 years. I mean, uh, I wrote a book about flipped learning called Flipped Learning, a Guide for Higher Education Faculty. And uh, it grew out of experiences in the classroom. So here again is this connection between teaching and research. They're, they're, they're not opposed to each other. They drive each other. 
at my previous institution, Small Liberal Arts College, I've been experimenting with flipped learning and you know, blogging about it, trying to help people not make the same mistakes that I did early on with it, because I felt like this was a really promising instructional design model. And I carried it forward when I came to GVSU. One of the reasons I came to GVSU was so I could have a bigger platform for exploring this, to be honest. Small liberal arts colleges are great, but they are constrained. I mean, you only have about 1,000 students, maybe 15 to 20 majors in your discipline. We only ran one section of Calculus two every year, for example. And so if you ever want to do something with Calculus two, you get on a two-year cycle with it. And I just felt like I need a little bit more more resources than that. But coming into Grand Valley, I mean, I kept writing, I kept doing things, and I started getting invited to come do workshops and talks about flipped learning because people were getting interested in this. This was 2012, 2013. And I just remembered really clearly, I had published a couple of papers about implementing flipped learning in a linear algebra course, implementing flipped learning in a transition to proof course. And I wrote the book because I would I was flown out to California to give a talk on flip learning. And on the way flight back in a long flight, I'm sitting with my laptop writing a blog post about something I was thinking about. And I stopped almost at the end of the blog post and realized this sounds familiar. And I searched it up and I had written this exact same blog post almost to the verbatim like three years earlier. <laughs> and at that point, I realized I need to get this stuff out of my head and into a book form, just get it in there once and for all. And so that's where the, the book came from. Currently, I have been working with a collaborator. The pandemic interrupted our research, unfortunately, but we have uh, some data to write up about flip learning as it's experienced by students with uh, learning disabilities. We designed some custom flip learning modules for a college algebra class and then found some students with documented learning disabilities and interviewed them about what their experiences were. Because nobody really knows how well this works, flip learning, with students who, for example, have ADHD or other executive functioning disorders. And so we're trying to find out. And we have some really interesting stuff that we found out. And I really need to get to work on writing that up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Robert, for those who are not familiar with flipped learning or also referred as flipped classroom, I will let you decide which term you want to use. How do you explain to someone who hears about flipped learning for the first time? Sure, sure. So this is an idea that's best understood by thinking first about how most of us have experienced our own educations, okay, so in school. So in a typical school setting, imagine a a classroom, a lesson that's about to begin, and you walk in as a student, or first of all, your first contact with all the new content happens in the live class setting, okay? So you have your first contact, and you get exposure and maybe some practice with the very, very most basic levels of cognitive operations, like memorizing definitions or seeing some examples of things, okay? And that occupies about a 50-minute lesson, and you're done. And then what happens is you are tasked with going deeper into the upper levels of understanding applications and analysis and that sort of thing on your own time outside of the classroom. Okay, so first contact happens inside the classroom. Everything else happens outside the classroom. Okay, that's the traditional way of doing things. It's been the way it's been for since 1088 in the University of Bologna. Flip learning is exactly the opposite of this. Okay, what happens is the early first encounter with new material and practice on the very, very basic stuff happens outside the classroom in your own space before class starts. Okay, through some sort of structured activity that guides you through the basic material and through the basic remembering and understanding type of tasks. 
And then when you show up to a class meeting, whether it's an online meeting or an in-person meeting or even an asynchronous meeting, like a discussion board thread that takes place over time, that's when you go into sort of the higher level applications and analysis. So you do the harder work when you're with people, when you're with the class itself. It's what the class is for, is to take the basics and go deeper and higher with it. And then the the trade-off is that you are responsible for sort of teaching yourself the basics through a structured activity. So it flips the context of when and where things happen in terms of the learning process. And that's why it's called flip learning. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, again, if I'm a teacher and educator and I'm used to face, you know, face-to-face in person, I've also done online because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. How do I design a flipped classroom, which is, again, in person, but follows the principles you just talked about. Just give people an idea of what it looks like, again, for in-person classroom. I think the design of a lesson is fairly agnostic in terms of the mode that you use. I think that the same overall sort of design theory of a flip classroom. I try not to say flip classroom because these days we don't necessarily have a classroom to flip or we have just this, you know, this whatever it is we're doing right now. But the the basic overall design principle is kind of the same whether you're in-person or synchronous or even asynchronous. And it goes like this. I mean, first of all, you have your lesson in mind and every well-designed lesson starts with clear and measurable learning objectives. You ask yourself, when this lesson is done, what do my students need to be able to do in terms of concrete action verbs. Don't use verbs like understand or appreciate or that sort of are like mental states. I mean, you want something like state the definition of a derivative, compute the derivative of a power function, interpret the meaning of a derivative in terms of slope of a tangent line. Now, this is all calculus stuff because I just got through teaching calculus. I apologize for anybody who's who's triggered by calculus, but... Uh, yeah, so it's the well-defined, like measurable, specific. Clear and measurable. Clear from the student's point of view, even though you might have to use some terminology that isn't there yet, and measurable. Like I can give my students something to do that will feed back to me direct evidence as to whether they can do this thing or not. Okay, so clear and measurable learning objectives. Most lessons in a 50-minute session will have anywhere between two and eight, let's say, clear and measurable learning objectives. So you list these out. I do all this at the very beginning of the semester for every lesson that's about to happen. I just sit down for a half a day and just write learning objectives for what I want my students to be able to do so I can have it done. When you think of that list of objectives, it may not appear, you may not think of those objectives in order of difficulty. Like one thing might occur to you first and then something simpler might occur to you later. So what you do is you take that list and you reorder it. You put the objectives in order from easiest to hardest or simplest to most complex, whatever you and your professional understanding uh, believe that to be the case. So now you have this ordered list. And so then you take this ordered list and you find a point in that list where you can draw a line, okay? A line between objectives that students can and should get some fluency with prior to class and then everything else. Okay, so for example, I might have, maybe I'm teaching the first lesson on the definition of a derivative and what a derivative means. So one of the simplest learning objectives will be just to simply state the definition of a derivative, Okay, that's something that even if you don't understand it, you can still state it. This is a very basic task. And I think students can do that, can learn how to state the definition of a derivative on their own time using a video tool or print or whatever makes it work. Okay, so I'm going to put that as an objective that I want students to, 
to get fluent with before class starts. And at some point, if you're going down this list, you're going to reach a point where you think, I'm not so sure that the average student is really capable of doing this on their own, even with a structured activity. And then that's where you draw the line. So now you've split this list in two. You have like the basic learning objectives up here, which are, again, learning objectives that are clear, measurable, and attainable by an average student through a structured activity independently. And then there's everything else, which you might call the advanced objectives. Okay, so you have basic and advanced. And then the basics are what we call they happen in the individual learning space. That's correct. That the student has flexibility, time, space. They can do it according to whatever guidance you provide them, but they can do that individually. And then the, there is a group learning or more advanced or higher level, I guess, application and learning. That's absolutely right, Maria. So the that second group of objectives, I call them advanced objectives. You could call them group objectives because that's what that's where they're going to take place. Okay, we're not even, I'm not going to expect students to have anything in terms of progress taken care of on those advanced objectives before class. That's a that's a list of things that they can safely ignore until class time. <laughs> Uh, the, the the earlier objectives, the basics ones, the students are expected to really teach themselves these things, but not completely independently, of course. I mean, they're going to have resources, they're going to have video content, they could have demos, they could have computer interactives, they could have print, they could have all these things, podcasts, anything that helps them learn those basics. And so once I have these two lists, then I'm going to start thinking about what do I want students to be able to do? What's the most important, difficult learning objective they need to be able to do. And that's what I'm going to focus the in-class time on. I'm not going to waste the in-class time on simple stuff, in other words. Because, I mean, one thing that we've learned throughout the pandemic is just how scarce class time really is. I mean, how precious it is, really. We've never had it taken away from us like this it's on such a scale. So now I think we're all really keen not to waste time. I mean, we, we're, we're really paying for this three hours a week or whatever we have in the classroom with students. And we're paying for it literally with some of our lives in some cases. And so, you know, there's absolutely no, no reason to be writing definitions on a chalkboard in the middle of class time. Man, what a horrendous waste that is. I mean, put it in a video and have students watch it before they come in. And then give them something to do that will show that they can state that definition, for example. Yeah, there's an element of what you talked about. So when you do like the instruction, the traditional way, it's more of passive learning because you are writing or you are sharing. And then I'm, as a student, I am like learning, but it's more of passive learning because I'm like collecting information and I'm processing it, of course. But now you're talking about when the students come into your class, the, now the, the group space, then they have already received this information. So now you're taking them into a more active learning or engaged learning. Yeah, that's right. How does it look like, like, how does a teacher facilitate and lead this active learning? Because now we're not talking about instruction anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we are actually talking about instruction, but it's not, like you say, it's not direct instruction. It's uh, my high school calculus experience. It's getting out of the way and giving students something to do where they can build their own understanding of things. It's construction, not instruction, I would say. So the purpose of running active learning of any active learning is to get students involved in an integral way with their own learning process. That's what active learning is, involvement, really. And so I want to design an activity. First of all, I have to have an objective. I have to understand what it is I want students to be able to do. So maybe, for example, it's I want students to be able to apply the concept of a derivative to solve an application problem involving velocity, for example. 
So it's an application. It's a pretty simple application. I just want to make sure this is, but it's really important and I want students to be able to do it. So what I'm going to do is design an activity that does exactly what the learning objective says. Like if the learning objective says, apply the definition of a derivative to compute velocities, I'm going to give students some work that asks them to apply the definition of the derivative to find velocities. It's just a straight line between objective and activity. And what it looks like is giving students this work to do, simple instructions, and then just back off, but not go out of the room or go, go get a cup of coffee, but you're staying away, but you're paying attention to what each student or each group of students is doing, whether it's in a, a breakout room or a physical table or in a threaded discussion board, monitoring what's going on for questions, for things that are going a little off track, for errors that can be correct. It's kind of like shooting a rocket into the air. When you fire off a rocket, it's constantly going off course. <laughs> and so they have these little jets on them to kind of push it one way or the next to keep it on course. And the, the instructor's role is to be the jets that keep it kind of just gently nudged to keep it headed toward the right, right thing. And then making sure that everyone's participating and uh, finally, when it looks like things are, are to a conclusion, you wrap it up. Or if there's a lot of confusion, you can intervene and ask some more questions. It's a lot of communication. It's listening, it's watching, it's communicating with students and getting with them on a small group to one basis, which to me is what makes education such an exciting thing. When I was a student, that's what I loved getting was uh, that personalized attention. And we, we miss that sometimes, especially in an online setting. And active learning is a way to get it back. I've read something really nice that you, uh, you wrote, that learning is a connection of people and ideas. Can you unpack this for us? Sure. I, I think learning, I, I think one of the things that psychological learning theory tells us is that expert learners learn by making connections between things. Like we don't, they don't memorize every single thing of calculus, every single concept in calculus as discrete, disconnected ideas. We learn to put new ideas into a web of pre-existing ideas, and that's how we become experts on things. Okay, we, we build our own little knowledge networks, uh, like a Wikipedia in our own brain. And uh, so when you learn something, what you're doing is you're fitting, you're assimilating this new information into your pre-existing network of what you already know. So there's a connection between ideas. And you make it personal, too. It's, you, you build your own understanding. So it's a connection between you and an idea. Like, you might have an, a def, an idea of what a derivative is that could be very different from what mine is. And we can both be right about it. And that's, that's okay. I mean, that's what makes it interesting. And it's also a connection from people to people. I mean, when you're doing this in a group, you're leveraging the social network that you have there at your table or in your breakout room or on the discussion board. You're leveraging that social network to get things into your knowledge network. And so you, we form a connection between you and myself or myself and my instructor or myself and Isaac Newton, because I'm definitely thinking, like, what was he thinking? I mean, he, he was in he was in a pretty bad uh, pandemic type situation, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And back in his day, I mean, he invented calculus. So what did we do during the pandemic? So it's a connection between ideas and ideas, people and people and people and ideas. That's to me what education is really all about. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Why did you decide to flip your first classroom? Like, why did you decide to make this change? <laughs> because I hate my job, I guess. It really happened because out of complete necessity. And if you look in the history of flip learning, it always comes out of necessity, trying to solve practical pedagogical problems. 
for me, I was working at a small liberal arts college, and I was the director of our engineering program. We didn't have an engineering major, but we had a, a partnership with a larger university where our math majors could get a math degree and an engineering degree in five years. It's called a three plus two program. And the scheduling part of this job was a nightmare because we had to coordinate two different university schedules. And anyway, I, I had this idea that I would create a course on our campus that would substitute for one of the courses on their campus so they wouldn't have to have so much cross-scheduling commuting. And this was a, a one-credit-hour uh, course in Introduction to Programming in a particular language called MATLAB. It's a, it's a numerical programming language a lot of engineers use. And so I have this bright idea that I would create a one-credit MATLAB course for math majors. And you take this, and we call it Computer Tools for Problem Solving. It was a pretty, pretty cool idea. And I went to the dean, and I pitched it, and he said, that's great. What are the parameters on this? And I said, well, I'd like to do three hours a week on, of class time on this, because it's a pretty deep language, you know, and none of these folks have computer background. And he said, I can give you one hour a week. And so... <laughs> The good news is you get to uh, you get to run your course. The the bad news is you get one third of the time in which to do it. And so I realized very quickly there was no way I could lecture in this class. Just no way because for number one you can't learn computer programming by watching someone program a computer. It's just like trying to trying to learn basketball by watching a basketball player. It just no, it does not translate. And second of all, uh, if I wanted students to do the active learning part of this course, you know, I was going to have to just get completely out of the classroom. I mean, there could be zero time by me spent lecturing in the classroom because we we're going to need every minute of that 90 minutes a week that I got. It's an hour and a half, actually, not 60 minutes. Yeah. How am I going to do this? And so I started just searching around for pre-existing models, and I stumbled across uh, this paper by three uh, economists at Miami University of Ohio they had invented this thing called the inverted classroom model to teach their, their economics, their intro to economics course. And their pedagogical problem was there was a fairly blue-collar you know, college in Ohio and a huge diversity of students, like 90, 100 people in their classrooms. And their lectures were not hitting most, of, were not sinking in to most of the students because many of those students had very poor backgrounds or just were from underprivileged backgrounds. And so they needed a way to get students more active in the classroom because their lectures were just ineffective. Like a lot of lectures, really ineffective if we start looking at it closely enough. And so I, I said, well, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. And so I just kind of adopted their, their program wholesale. This was even before YouTube was invented. And so they had VHS tapes in the library that students had to go watch. We at least had the, the benefit of recorded video online. Uh, and it didn't go well. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of problems at first. I mean, it did not go well at all at first. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I really wasn't. I wasn't listening to my students well. They were trying to tell me things. I just didn't want to hear it because I thought, oh, I'm, I'm doing the latest and greatest pedagogical thing. You know, you should be appreciative. But, you know, we worked it out and I stuck with it. And I just had to listen and iterate. And that's kind of what a lot of what's in my book is just like mistakes made, lessons learned. But it, I mean, it all, it all boils down to I need to get as much active learning in the classroom as humanly possible. And how am I going to do that? Whenever you see flip learning sort of pop up, that's the problem that's trying to be solved. Okay, very good. So, Robert, through your own experience, but also through the evolution, what are the, the big changes you've seen in the last decade or so? And what has been done, let's say, to, to make it more effective? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, one thing that I will say over the last 10 years, the amount of research, peer-reviewed published research on flipped learning has literally grown exponentially. I do a, a series on my blog once a year in June where I go back through the previous year, 
do a little lit review and see how many papers were published. And it's been on an exponential curve uh, going upward, skyrocketing upward for close to eight or nine years now. Most of this is being done by people who are just in the classroom gathering data from their students. It's not fancy. Some of it's a little on the, probably should improve their methodology a little bit, but it's, 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 it's got a lot of heart, you know. And what I see from that research is, first of all, I think there's an understanding now amongst people who really know this topic that this is not a flash in the pan. This is not a niche. This is not a fad. Okay, This is a paradigm shift that we've observed take place over the last 10 to 15 years. And just knowing that, knowing that this is not just some administrator-driven pipe dream, unfunded mandate or whatever, I feel like it makes people a lot more confident in moving forward with trying this themselves. The technology to pull flip learning off and do it well has improved dramatically over the last 10 years. Video creation software has gotten extremely good, free in some places. You can make very good videos for no cost other than time, as we keep it simple, which you should if you're going to do video at all. So the technology's gotten better. I mean, video conferencing, my goodness, this video conference that we're having right now would have seemed like science fiction 10 years ago. We had, what, Skype? It was terrible. And now it's like incredibly smooth. And that technology is great. We have uh, the technology that can be used to help students learn things on their own has uh, gotten better. And I would say, too, just the necessity of what flip learning is about has become much more prominent, especially since the pandemic hit. I think, uh, you know, there used to be a debate about whether students should be put in the position of teaching themselves things, right? I mean, that's our job, right? We shouldn't, students shouldn't be teaching themselves things. That's like a sign of failure. Now, I really think if we, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to believe that if we're not teaching students how to teach themselves things and giving them the taste for it and the interest for it, we're really setting them up for failure later on in life because every job that they're going to take is going to involve self-teaching on some level. Flip learning is predicated on self-teaching, and we should never shy away from that. That is a feature, not a bug. And when the pandemic hit, you know, I started getting a lot of calls to ask me about flip learning all of a sudden (laughs) because I think it clicked with a lot of people that flip learning is the paradigm that gets us through the pandemic if we really choose to make it so. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really served us well. And I will say I was department chair at the time of the math department at Grand Valley uh, when the pandemic first hit in March 2020. And uh, so I had 40 faculty under me trying to make this all work. And I will say that the faculty who have been doing flip learning had very few problems making a transition. It was just like another day at the office for them, or not at the office, I should say, for them. But the, the faculty members who had been doing a really great job, I mean, I'm in a, a department of amazing faculty, but the ones who had not been doing flip learning really struggled to make the transition. And so I think that moving forward, we have to have these paradigms where students have responsibilities, we have responsibilities, and our responsibility is to set up and maintain a learning environment, not to communicate and just transmit information everywhere. Mm-hmm. And students have the responsibility of assimilating that information. And flip learning has become a really trusted framework for doing that. What are the key drivers, the key changes that now, during the pandemic, but also post-pandemic, uh, that flipped learning is probably one of the most effective ways to manage or make our teaching and learning better? Well, I think one of the key drivers just would be, again, necessity. We look to what happens with students after they leave our universities. And I spent a year in industry on sabbatical with a company here in Grand Rapids. And 
I asked a lot of questions about like, what, are, what is it you're needing from our graduates right now? And never when I asked that question, did I ever get a list of topics to know. It was always something along the lines of, we need people who we don't have to tell them everything to do. We need people who have initiative, that they self-start, that they can learn things on their own and learn really, really quickly because this is a very rapidly changing world we live in. That's a key driver, just the rapidity with which the world is changing, has changed over the last, goodness, 10 months, six months, six weeks, who knows. So if if you're stuck in an educational paradigm where change is glacially slow, like a lot of higher education is still stuck in this kind of paradigm, then... It might be comfortable for you as a professor, but it's, it's killing your students. And I think we got to wake up to this. Who do we want our students to become? The answer to that really lies not in, it just realizes that the higher education journey does not stop when you have a diploma. I mean, uh, it continues on throughout your lifespan and even in some ways past your lifespan if you have children of your own or people that you care for. Uh, you know, so lifelong learning is one of these buzzwords that shows up in every, you know, every university's mission statement has this. But I wonder if we really stop to think about what it looks like and what's involved with this and just how valuable that is. I mean, really, I, I go back to what I learned teaching in liberal arts institutions that you know, the liberal arts are not, I mean, they are very practical when you think about liberal arts education. Some of the most practical things you learn are in the liberal arts education, but it's not focused on mere utility. It's about, can you set yourself up to be a functioning, growing human being over the course of your lifespan? Okay, that's what higher education is really all about. It's called higher education, not because it's more expensive than other education or it's, it's somehow, I don't know, it's education about education itself. It's learning how to learn things over the course of your life, no matter what they are, and being able to adapt and stay human and grow in depth and height as a human being. And that involves constantly learning things. I mean, any of us who are adults knows that you're always learning. And if you're not learning, you might just be deeply unhappy, first of all, and you might not be viable for making your life what you want it to be later on. And when we talk about student-centered learning, it's putting literally students at the center of this decision that we make about how we teach in the classroom. Am I teaching it because it's easy for me? Am I teaching because it's the way that I learned? Is, am, I, am I always pointing back to myself when I think make decisions about pedagogy and teaching? Or am I pointing outward to the students and thinking, what do they need? If, if I really cared about these students, I would want them to have great, meaningful, fulfilling lives, no matter what they do, no matter what they choose to do. And what sort of teaching do I do tomorrow in class that moves them just a little step toward that? So that's a very deep question, and it's a difficult question to answer, but there are a lot of easy, wrong answers to this. (laughs) Okay, so a student-centered education is not simply lecturing to students on basic information. Okay, that is, that's the exact opposite of a student-centered education, because students can do that on their own. They need to be able to do this on their own. That's the core intellectual step towards being a regular, functioning, viable human being and a good worker as being able to assimilate information into your own network. And if you do that for a student, then you're short-circuiting everything. So, I mean, it starts by looking at the student and asking what they need 20 years from now to be a good mom, to be a good programmer, to be a good engineer, to be a good friend, to be a good neighbor, to do anything. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, Robert, for students who, let's say, have the flipped learning experience for the first time, what are their struggles or where do you find that you need to guide them further as they grow into their self-regulated learning? Yeah, that's a very difficult and very good question. The first thing is just managing expectations, I think, because many students, although it's fewer and fewer students these days, are coming out of a background where it's just pure teachers at the board, they write notes, I copy the notes down, I do something like the notes on a test, and just over and over and over again. Although that's changing, I think, but that's another maybe conversation to have. And as much as a pretty strong adoption of flipped learning techniques in the K through 12 or elementary, primary, secondary schools world as well, trying to explain to students what it is they're going to be doing, what am I going to be doing, and why are we doing it this way? <laughs> that's something that really has to be aired out in the first week of class, or it's just going to be a constant struggle. The way I frame it is like this. I just say, like, what's something that you really enjoy doing that you're good at doing? It doesn't have to be school. It doesn't can be anything. And uh, you know, students will say, I'm really good at snowboarding, or I'm good at playing the guitar, or I'm good at baking brownies. And I'll ask them, well, how did you get good at that? What, what was your process for how you got good? Because that's amazing. That's great. You know, I can't snowboard. So, I mean, how did you get good at it? And I never hear, hear a student say, I attended a snowboarding 101 class, took a whole bunch of notes and did a bunch of worksheets on snowboarding, and now I'm a great snowboarder. It always has to do with a narrative of try, fail, pick yourself up, and iterate. Just, and do mindful iteration of a skill, of an understanding of a concept until it finally becomes fluent with you. Everything that we know that we value gets learned this way. And so we just start there. And so, well, why should calculus be any different than that? I mean, calculus isn't snowboarding, but it could be just as meaningful to you as snowboarding if we approach it the right way. Mm -hmm. And so to make this work, you know, I'm going to have you do some stuff before class. It's, you're not going to be on your own. You're going to be able to ask questions. You're going to have lots of resources and support so that when we get to class, we're going to work on the hard stuff. And uh, then it begins to sort of click with them. And every now and then I'll have, a stu have students who just really want to sit back and be lectured to. And it's like, I would like that too. I mean, it's, there's, what's not to like? It's, it's incredibly easy. That's why it doesn't work. That's why it doesn't stick with you. And so that's that sort of expectation management of what the student's role is and what the professor's role is is really important. I would say another big, big issue is I'm not going to say time management because I, I don't believe there's any such thing as time management. We don't manage time, right? We, it either, it just is and we do with it, so we do certain things with it. But time management is a real issue, like giving yourself enough time, enough space to read carefully, to ask questions, don't procrastinate, budget your time, that kind of thing is a, it's a huge, huge problem for students in college flip learning or otherwise, I think we learned that in the pandemic too. We got to do something about teaching students basic attention project information management skills. And students can get completely run over in a flip classroom uh, if they don't pay attention to the flow of information. Mm -hmm. That's an ongoing problem I don't know how to solve. Yeah. By the way, I've, I've worked in the industry in a corporation for 20 years and I've managed, you know, and worked with different teams. The skills you just talked about, are like the basic skills that we see, unless you learn them early, <laughs> early, I don't know, your family, your school, your classroom, practice these skills, like this is how you learn these skills. Mm -hmm. Time management, deep work, focus, complete your deliverable, keep your promises, manage your focus, your time. And all of that is self-regulation to me. That's how I put them in a big category. This is a skill that you need to like live your life and do your work. 
That's exactly right. And we ought to be starting on this skill like when kids are six or seven years old, but we don't. So we, we try to catch them as early as we can. If we can, if we can start when they're 18 and taking calculus one, then maybe we have a shot at, at moving the needle with them. I hope so. Mm-hmm. You just completed teaching online, flipped learning. Is there anything that surprised you or anything you had to do differently compared to you know, previous classrooms? Sure. Well, in fact, the, the, class, the classes that I just finished up were synchronous online. I have taught asynchronous calculus asynchronously before, and I've also taught sort of a mix. It was a, it was a bizarre mix of synchronous and asynchronous, so I've seen kind of every permutation of that. What surprised me the most was that how easy some of the teaching became once it was online, like fully online, because technological tools are a great way to learn mathematics. You know, professionals use these tools to help them think and in an in-person class, I've always had some element of struggle with my students to get them to get on board with using technology. And so we always have to have these fights about technology. But on an online course, you cannot fight about technology. I mean, it's, it's the air you breathe. I mean, you cannot. And this was a fully synchronous online course. And so the, the question as I was putting it together became, you know, how do you manage assessment practices like tests, exams? Or what, what are you going to do to assess student learning? And... Uh, you know, you could go the route of having, you know, time tests in a 50-minute segment and install one of these proctoring software things on your computer. It's horrible. I mean, it's just an incredible violation of privacy. It's, there's, there are massive equity issues involved here. And so I just made an open season in my course and to say, here's, a, here's an exam. You get 48 hours to finish it. Use whatever technology you need as long as you explain what you're doing. And uh, my students have never done better work than this. There's no academic dishonesty. I mean, because they they realize, hey, I don't have to worry so much about screwing up some sixth grade arithmetic piece in a calculus problem because I can just go onto my computer and check it out, which is exactly what professionals do. And so it surprised me. A number of things that surprised me about that, one of which was I still had to really convince students that it was okay. It's like they just wouldn't use the technology. It's like you have the whole internet to use, okay? It's like, oh, no. I was surprised that I had to kind of badger my students to use technology. Usually you hear it's like the opposite. But I, I, was, I was surprised in a pleasant sort of way, maybe not surprised at all, that at how much it improved their work and how little cheating there was in this. It's just much better than creating a police state in your class. Just trust your students and give them the tools to work with and then, and then insist on high standards for their work. You can insist on high standards because they've got the entire internet to work with. And so that, the assessing became completely different, but I don't think I'm going to go back, actually. I think I'm going to stick with this assessment plan once we're back face-to-face in the fall, honestly. Mm-hmm. Do you think you still need the synchronous piece, or could you do things asynchronous? I could do things asynchronously. Uh, my students, not so much. I, I think they can, but what I heard loud and clear from them was that they're still teenagers or 18, 19 years old. They're, they're very social, okay? And it's just missing that certain magic element for them of interacting and seeing faces and hearing voices. I, I commend them for this, actually. I, I kind of feel like maybe I'm missing something uh, if I feel like it's going to be so easy for me to do asynchronous work. But for them, interacting live with another human being is an integral part of the educational experience. And uh, they'll be able to add to that palette, you know, as they go. But for them, I think in the stage of their development, that's what they're saying. And I completely trust them that that's the case. And so 
I, I'll still teach asynchronous classes if called upon. I, I liked it. I mean, it's it's difficult to keep the engagement going uh, when it's just back and forth on a discussion board. But again, the tools are better than they ever have been. But, you know, and listening to my students, I think like synchronous is probably here to stay for a while. Let's move to educators. Sure. You do your workshops, your, you know, people also read the book. I'm sure you receive a lot of uh, insight and feedback uh, about their major struggles. So if someone has changed their mind already, so they know they want to flip their classroom, mm-hmm. what skills do they need to build? Or where do they need more support so they can flip their classroom and be effective? You know, I think that most faculty have all the tools, intellectual tools and creative and professional tools they need inside them to do this. What they really need is support. And support looks like a lot of different things. One key aspect of support is just sort of an assurance that if they try something that's a little outside normal experience in teaching and it doesn't go well, are they going to be in serious professional trouble? Like if they get terrible course evaluations, are they going to lose their jobs because of it? That's what I hear a lot, that they're not assured that, you know, they're, they're afraid in some ways that students are going to hate what they're doing, take it out on them on their course evaluations, and this will trickle into their promotion, tenure, and merit raise considerations. Okay, so if you're an administrator, this is really almost like an administrative problem. I mean, you, so you give, your, give your faculty some cover for trying calculated risks that are in the best interest of students. So that's what they really would like to see. What they really would like to see is like some hard policy that says like, you'll never be fired because you've got bad course evaluations or something like that. Uh, that would be great. And not every place can do that. Also, a key aspect of support is like a community of practice that they can plug into, whether that's just the person next door in their office that they can go knock on the door and say, well, I taught this class today was flipped and it went terribly. What am I doing? You know, what, what should I be doing differently? What was your experience like? Being able to share experiences and share ideas easily and quickly with another human being, to be vulnerable with them and to be able to signal the need for help uh, is, is an incredibly strong uh, aspect of support. I mean, the research has been done about adoption of active learning practices or research-based learning practices pretty clearly shows that's the number one barrier to adoption of research-based teaching practices is simply the lack of a close ally, if you will, that can be reached out to, the person across the hall, if you will. And so, you know, we really need communities of practice that are in place, whether they're departmental seminars or if you have a center for teaching and learning on your campus, if that's being run, or if it's a Slack workspace. I run a Slack workspace for instructors who use what's called mastery-based grading practices, something kind of completely different. But, you know, that's been, we have, we have 800 people on that Slack, and it's very active, uh, people in the humanities talking with the people who are in physics about how they do their standards-based grading and so forth. And the ability to just sort of open up and have a judgment-free zone about what they're doing and what they can improve upon, that's huge. And uh, it provides sort of activation to the tools that they already have. And and one last thing that I think the faculty really say that they want, and I believe them, is they say, you say time, right? We just, you know, I don't have the time to do this. You know, we really kind of do have the time. We just, we don't know how to use it. We don't know how to say no to other things. We can say yes to some things. And we, we sort of lack frameworks that make the whole design process more efficient, too. And it, in my book is kind of focused on the framework part of this. Like, there's a lot of theory in it, but the whole middle third of that book is all just practical. Here's what you do to plan a lesson out, right? And I think that's, that's resonated with faculty, that they can just start with a framework, 
for designing a 50-minute session, and that framework can be repeated over and over and over again, then it becomes sort of like an automated process. It becomes easy to believe that this can become part of your everyday teaching experience. Mm -hmm. So the book is a resource. Let's say someone now has a little bit more understanding. We'll also put the links to your website because you have a lot of good information there and everything. So people get more insights. Great, thanks. Communities of practice and step-by-step, you know, sharing the experience with others Mm -hmm. is very helpful. So the Slack community you talked about, is it open to others if they want to join or is it exclusive? No, it's it's open. Uh, it's open to anyone who is using standards-based grading, specifications grading, contract grading, uh, even people who are doing what's called ungrading, anything that we call mastery-based grading practices. It's open and I can give you the link to share with your uh, viewers if you want to. Thank you so much. So let's now take maybe a couple of minutes to look at the future. Sure. Based on the evolution of flipped learning, what do you see in the near future? And where are the opportunities for educators to make their teaching and learning better? Mm. So making teaching and learning better, I think that we have to accept that we don't live in a bubble in higher education. We have to look outward to where our students are going after they're done with us to learn what to import into our educational experiences. My my year that I spent at Steelcase on sabbatical, Steelcase being a a furniture manufacturer here in Grand Rapids, long story there, but they they have a, a strong educational side of things, and I was a consultant to their educational side. You know, I learned a lot about what I should be doing in the classroom by just simply observing the business end of that corporation, uh, much like your experience in industry, you know, would, would inform you. And we got to start partnering with people who are out, who are outside our world here. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a much more contracted world these days and the barriers are all gone because of the pandemic and everything else. And I think we got to start realizing that, you know, higher education is not the ivory tower. We can't, we can't live there anymore. Uh, we have to look and see what we can learn from other types of organizations culturally and organizationally and in terms of their goals and also what these these people have to tell us about what we should be doing with our students. And uh, that's that will make our teaching better just by osmosis, just by being near people who aren't like us. We say a lot about diversity in higher education. Everyone's obsessed with diversity, but we are, we're a pretty non-diverse industry sector <laughs> when you look at it. We only associate with other universities. So, I mean, on an organizational sense, we need to start taking our own medicine in some sense. And that's going to make our teaching a lot better. Embracing technology is going to be a very important aspect of, of education as well. I'm not a humanist, so I don't know what this looks like on the humanities, social science side of, of, uh, of the university. But I know in the STEM disciplines for, for us, uh, we have to really embrace technology and teach as though computers actually existed uh, rather than what we've been doing. And that's going to make our teaching actually relevant to the 20th century now that we're a quarter of the way through the 21st century. And I would say, too, that we need to, we have to trust our students more than we do now. There's some really ugly stories that I see coming out of higher education about, that have to do with things like proctoring software and really draconian measures about uh, academic dishonesty and so forth. Like I, just read a, I just read an article where there's this organization in our discipline in mathematics that is uh, pushing for every college to for students to use proctoring software. And they point to a university that will not accept transfer credit unless 70% of a student's grade is determined by an exam that is proctored. 
And that's just horrible. That's horrible. It's, it's impossible to do and shame on them for even trying this. It starts from a place of distrust of students. And, uh, you know, when you're around a person, when you are around a person that does not trust you, you know it and you get away from them. And if we keep acting that way with our students, they're going to do exactly the same thing as us. You know, the, our competitors in higher education, like the coding boot camps and other sort of alternative forms of education, I mean, it used to be pretty laughable, but they're getting better every year. And at some point, you know, this is going to be a real choice. I've got a 17-year-old kid who's going to be thinking about college, and she's not 100% sure that traditional universities are the right fit for her, and I'm not sure either, to be honest. There are a lot of good alternatives, and if we don't provide some value proposition for these students and start treating them like human beings, teaching them like human beings, we're going to lose them all. Yeah. So it's trust, it's empowerment, it's active learning. All those things. All these yeah. things that you can differentiate. Yeah, you're right. My final question. What is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? <laughs> my children, absolutely, without, without a doubt. I mean, my profession, it's great that I can be, I, I feel really privileged, like I have a great professional life, like I get to go places and I meet really cool people, you know, I get to go on podcasts that are awesome. But in the end, your legacy is defined by the people that you care for, right? And that's, that's partially my students. You know, it's really cool to see my students from 10 years ago on LinkedIn doing these incredible things, and they're going to have people they influence and so on. But I mean, really, you know, I want to leave my mark on my three children. They're 12, 15, and 17 right now. So they're going to be out of my house, you know, sooner than I expect or know. And uh, I feel like the real mark of my success as a human being is whether they're going to be kind, compassionate, intelligent, people full of grace who can leave mercy where they go. I mean, that's, that's been my guide all along. I mean, I hope that same thing on a similar scale for my students as well, you know, but the parent-child thing is, that's the thing that occupies most of my mental space, I would say. That's where I want my legacy to be reside in, I would say. Beautiful. Thank you, Robert. It was great to learn more about your story. I appreciate all the teaching you did on flipped learning. And uh, we'll put all the resources for people who are interested, your book and all the other resources so they can uh, take you know, a step forward. But thank you so much. Thank you, Maria. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live, and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidu. Till next time.